0: Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. If you're not familiar, Sales Schema is a fractional new business team and system for boutique agencies that are looking to grow. Basically, what we're doing is going out to the market, acting as an extension of our clients' teams, basically acting as them, not Sales Schema, to keep the pipeline full, make sure meetings are coming in, I uh, make sure that there's that constant drumbeat of new business activity, regardless of whether our clients are busy or not busy. Whatever is going on, whether there's fires or any other needs and, and obligations going along with running the agency, the pipeline has to be full. And that's basically what we're looking to help our clients with. One of the biggest questions that we get is how is an outsider able to represent us effectively? How is that supposed to happen? After all, you know, most of our clients are selling complex marketing services, whether it's experiential, PR, integrated, uh, full service, social media. Um, there's moving parts involved, and it takes a lot to convince somebody to move forward. So at the end of the day, our clients and those we talk to, most agencies are absolutely right in this regard. We're never going to be able to close deals for them. That's going to take an in-house Person that's going to take training, that's going to take a lot. But what we're really good at is getting that first date. Really good at getting that first date, and then our clients are moving things forward to marriage. And the way that we're doing that is different than a lot of other companies that, that are out there. The thing is, a lot of our company, a lot of our clients have hired, you know, quote unquote lead generation companies to basically you know, put in a token and out comes the business. And the problem with this approach is that there is a lot more distraction than there used to be, and it doesn't work as well for high level marketing services. So what we do is targeted nurturing over multiple channels. So we're using LinkedIn, email, and eventually the phone, not in a cold calling capacity, but when we get somebody warm. In conjunction with that, On more and more campaigns, we are incorporating thought leadership. And the purpose of this is to make sure that our clients come in with a real sense of authority. So they're not just another senseless marketing agency that's blending in with the pack. Um, So what does that actually mean? What does that look like? It means that we are using the same approaches and the same methodology that we are very good at, at using to get meetings for our clients, to get our clients placements on niche podcasts, niche blogs and publications. And what's so cool about that is that once we're able to get those placements, um, we can make that tie into everything else to create a surround sound effect. We can reference and link to those authority builders and the outreach that we're doing to marketing leaders. As with any service like this, we're not right for every agency. We, We do well when, first of all, the agency has a strong value prop, which I know mean a lot of different things. but typically what it means is that our clients are niched. they work with you know one or maybe a few related verticals and they have you know great stories to tell there tied to that, you know, they have a strong track record. They've been in business for at least a number of years. They have case studies uh, and so on. And perhaps most importantly, they are growth focused. That means they either have somebody in perhaps a split role that is excited to be getting on. Uh, calls that's excited to be developing new relationships with people in their market, they have growth goals set, uh, and so on. So if that might be you, and you'd like to learn more about what you're doing, you can go to saleschema.com to learn more and schedule a consultation with us. Today's guest is Suresh Raj. And Suresh is the Chief Business Development Officer at Blue Impact. And if you've kept in touch with the ad agency Newsreel and places like Adweek and so on, then you might have heard of Blue Impact because they have uh, basically the accumulation of Blue Focus and Legacy that have combined uh, to form that organization. They include agencies like We Are Social, Fuse Project, Madhouse, Eleven, and Cassette. So with that in mind, Suresh has a really interesting focus. He is, is basically at the helm of new business for a number of different entities, um, and for an agency that's now led by a Chinese organization. So with that in mind, you know, time management is a big focus of this episode. Basically, how are you dividing up your day um, and, and figuring out what relationships to invest in and basically how you are investing in that relationship building and providing value so that when it comes time to do business, you're the shoe-in. So that was a big focus of the episode. In addition, we talked a lot about where things are, are heading on, on a macro level. Um, and a lot of what we hear about is the decline of the traditional agency model, the decline of the, the, the AOR model and that sort of thing. And Suresh might um, beg to differ a little bit. There's some trends heading the other way that are going to be interesting to pay attention to. So we got into that. And we talked about the growth of India and China and how if you are an agency that has the capacity to work internationally, you'd be very misguided to neglect the opportunity there because it's absolutely massive. And we talked specifically about how an international new business agency leader approaches talent and the hunt for talent throughout the agency. So I think you're going to learn a ton from this episode. I certainly did. So without further ado, please give it up for Suresh Raj. Suresh, thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you so much. But thank you for considering me and including me.
0: Yeah, of course. And, and you've, uh, you've been in some, some very interesting places in, in this agency world of ours. And you're, you're now Chief BD Officer business development officer at, at Blue Impact. So as I often do, maybe we can just start kind of going through your background a little bit and how you got to, you know, a, a pretty high up position in, in an international agency like this.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, my career started in the UK. I actually started in uh, traditional communications. I worked with a traditional PR agency and actually earned my stripes that way. And I think it was fair sort of 5 years actually uh, specialized in media relations so my black book were journalists rather than clients um building relationships with the media and through that landing a lot of stories and then um naturally progressed over to a new business role because i loved uh, pitching for new business as part of the team whenever we went after a new piece of business uh, and i loved the thrill of actually going after a new client finding a new story and so uh, the 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 approach I used for landing a story for clients in media was the same approach I used to landing a client for our agency. Um, And and once I had the first taste of uh, new business blood, I was hooked and and realized actually I really loved doing that um, and stayed in the agency world ever since. It's now about 22 years uh, within the industry and I was in my first agency for about 10 and a half years uh, moved from that, a traditional PR agency, multidiscipline PR agency, to a um, very high-profile public, uh, publicity-driven agency and uh, ran by a very well-known publicist, um, and then and then moved to the integrated model. So from there, I joined Engine, uh, which has a U.S. presence, uh, was, is fairly big in the U.K., uh, worked in an integrated fashion, and this is about 16 years into my career, uh, and then Ogilvy came call, calling. Um And Ogilvy was a bit of a um, dream for me. Um, I studied in, in my MBA, David Ogilvy was referenced everywhere, and I, I felt that one day when I was worthy enough, I would get the chance to apply. Uh, and when they came calling, I thought that was uh, quite serendipitous, and, and uh, you know, the stars at the line. And uh, it took a whole year to actually uh, bring me in because they had never actually had a business development person before. Um, So convincing, um, my contract was signed by Sir Martin Sorrell, I wasn't a a cheap hire, and it took them 11 months to convince WPP that they needed a biz deaf person. And within six months of being at Ogilvy within the PR division, um, they saw the immediate impact in terms of just understanding the strength of the pipeline, understand, understanding where the revenues were coming in, understanding the, the prioritizing of opportunities, resources, et cetera, and that led to much better conversion, um, and we grew. So, you know, we crossed over the seven-figure uh, um, uh, sort of uh, turnover for the London office. Uh, within six months, I was promoted to Emir, uh, MD of EMEA, running business development for across EMEA, and within a year, I then took over the global role uh, for the public relations business. And in that global role, I was moved to New York, the Global HQ. Um, within a year, a bit of doing that, I was then elevated to the global integrated uh, chief biz dev officer role across Ogilvy Group. So that sort of, that was timed at the same time as the Ogilvy restructure. So I was part of the team that John Seifert put together um, to actually look at the restructuring of Ogilvy and also how we actually bring all these assets and talent from across disciplines to actually work collaboratively to answer client issues. Uh, And after about five and a half, six years at Ogilvy that it felt like a natural time for change, Um, I moved over to part of the DJE Holdings Group, Um, spent about a year and a half there felt I needed something bigger, actually, because I, I downsized at that point, And I actually realized, actually, I did need to get something bigger. Um, I needed the strength of an integrated unit because client challenges these days are not just necessarily in silos. Clients have a business problem rather than a only specific communications problem or an advertising problem, so on and so forth. So the integrated model was some, not, I hate using the word integrated, but actually understanding how to use the best resources and skill set across market communications. Mm-hmm bench was particularly important. Uh, and when Blue Focus, at that point, uh, came calling, um, the timing was also very interesting because of the journey that they were on. So currently, in terms of Blue Impact, we're in the process of, uh, you, you'd have read about it in the press, we've um, released our intent to lo- list on the New York Stock Exchange right. uh, going through the SEC filing at the moment. Uh, and that was the thing that was most interested. In, in terms of being part of the team that's going to build this story for the next iteration.
0: Yeah, and before we get, in, get into that, there's so much I want to get into here um, the, based on what, what you just talked about. The one thing that's really interesting to me is that you know a very historic agency like Ogilvy, a very large agency, hadn't had a full-time BD person. Why do you think that was? Why do you think they were able to thrive for so long without having that role? And, and why was it a hard sell for you to kind of get that in there at the time?
1: Um, wow. Very good question. And and I wouldn't necessarily say just for Ogilvy, actually, because across every business I've been on, I tended to have been the very first person they put in place in terms of new business or business development. Right here, it blew me back. I'm the very first hire uh, in that sense in terms of the group level. Um and I think traditionally, an agency traditional models are very much around the account, uh, surround the account people, right? They, the MDs of businesses or the the, the managing directors of offices, geoloc, so sort of ge- geographies or or actual practice areas. If you think about health and wellness or consumer, so on and so forth, are often tasked with driving growth, driving new business. Um, but also there is a laundry list, an incredibly long laundry list of other responsibilities like. Operations and resource and talent, and you know, HR issues, and just keeping the lights on and making revenue, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, if you think about fragmentation, and I love the concept of timesheets because when you fill up your timesheets, you realize how much time you spend across everything else, and you're also supposed to be um, spending time um, going out, networking, building relationships, bringing the business in, pitching for it working with the teams to pitch for the business, et cetera, winning it hopefully, betting it down, and then moving on and getting something else. And if you think about how much resource that takes, and in, in right right now, um, you know, task-rich, time-poor environment, uh, it's difficult, right? So um, the one thing that I've, at least in my experience for the organizations I've ever worked with, they have found that need that nobody could actually fulfill a dedicated resourced in order to actually keep the pipeline active and ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, prior to somebody like me, the pipeline tends to start and stop. Is there any new business? If, if someone like me does, doesn't exist within the organization, of course, it, you know, there's inbound, et cetera. But any agency worth its salt actually needs to have an inbound and outbound uh, process uh, and relationship-building uh, capabilities and tools. Uh, and often that actually does need some dedicated resource because, A, it's focused on actually building the pipeline. So it's not so, the, you know, the, the the buck doesn't stop solely with the business development individual. Um, it is a shared responsibility, but that is a dedicated resource that keeps um, focusing on driving growth. And, you know, if your, eyes, if your eyes are constant in the target, you can actually... Do really well and keep growing it. But if your eyes are sometimes on the target, sometimes on something else, there's very little focus, and you be able to drive something forward. So, um, yeah. at least in my experience, I think that's what's made the biggest difference.
0: Yeah, that, that's really that's really important. And it's it's interesting that it's it's taken so long for many agencies to kind of develop that role, especially on the, the large agency side of things. Um, I guess with that in mind, you know, what what have you found to be effective? You mentioned that you you got a lot of lessons from PR and pitching stories and. What what what's working for you now in terms of getting into the right rooms and, and closing deals in this day and age?
1: Um, I will unpack that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's I, a hard
0: question. <laughs> you know,
1: I because and and maybe it's just maybe it's just me. I don't know, but i i don't see I don't see this role as a real a role that closes deals. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that's what you have to do to win business, etc. But I think the the emphasis is actually about building relationships. Today's Environment, right? It, it's not just about let's let's clinch the deal, close it. Of course, that's the that's the holy grail you want to ultimately win the business and it inspires everybody because it creates a wave of emotion across the agency. There's great camaraderie with the client, and it's a fabulous thing. But if you don't invest in building relationships, I think <laughs> at, at the outset, and those relationships can take two months before you land something. It can take two years before you land something, but. Building trusted relationships, I think is where the emphasis is. Um, and so for me, I, I I actually shift a lot of my emphasis on that. Because if you invest in building the relationships, those opportunities tend to come to you rather than you have to hunt really difficult and, and really hard for it, right? And, and invest a lot of time doing that. So then you start to think about the mechanics of what you need to do to build this relationship. So it's not just about going out and meeting and et cetera. yes invest time doing that uh, but also being informative uh, informative and and sharing and and providing connections and, and you know mutually introducing people and and i find a lot of that builds um what do you call that uh, kudos actually it mm-hmm. builds a lot of kudos and trust in that relationship and at some point they'll go you know what let's have a conversation so right now like one of my ex colleagues who have we became friends over the years, um, you know, and now runs marketing for a very big international group. And we were just conversing on some subject matter through, I think it was even Facebook and I actually said, you know, posed a, a provocation said, look, have you thought about, it? he was he was looking at a certain uh, answer to a business problem through a specific lens where, and not incorrect, correct lens. And I said, look, that's really viable, but have you thought about your end user and your end customer and what they perceive as interesting and what, what's going to take to reach them to, to be able to engage them. And, and I said, look, you know, this, this is what we do with our portfolio. A lot of our, our portfolio is actually your end user. And actually, have you thought about coming from that angle? And he goes, never actually thought about that. Really interesting point of view. Can we have a chat? And literally, that was literally because, hey, you know, we're thinking about problems holistically, but also it's been built on a relationship that's trusted over years.
0: Right, right. So and
1: for me, I feel that's where the investment is.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's that's really important. Uh, and and there's, you know, there's a lot of of uh, you're in very you know good company with that sort of approach. I think with with mm-hmm. every and the idea of needing to build a relationship in order to to close any sort of business, especially high higher level business. Mm-hmm. I, to, to unpack that even more and, and get into the the how a little bit, um, and this might be a meandering question. How do you sort of balance the need, the short term versus the long term, right? Because we're talking about long term relationship building and how long it takes to build trust and and provide value and then just sort of be extremely magnanimous for a long period of time to get into these, into the right places when the business is ready to be done. How do you manage that versus short term thinking where you know if you're if you're being managed by whoever it is and you're a BD person in an agency, you have certain quotas and certain goals and you've got to hit that. So I guess on a day-to-day level, how are you sort of balancing those two things? The need to hit certain numbers now versus the fact that this is a long term. Uh, approach, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, a very fair question as well. Um, of course, yes. That the emphasis is all, from my point of view, is all about building relationships. But then you also need to understand what the short-term and long-term trajectories are, and what your revenue goals are, right? Um, and the way I do that is, you know, what I, I plot it out, right? So I know exactly what I need to hit in the short term. I know what I need to hit hit in the long term. Um, and I also look at the portfolio of opportunities I'm going after and that's inbound and outbound. Uh, who am I investing time in terms of building relationships, et cetera and where are the, the relevant budgets? What are there are lots of brands who actually pitch out work um, on a project basis, right And so that fills up the short-term uh, need for revenue and we can we can actually create resource plans against short-term needs and there are also a lot of big brands, particularly a lot of the big legacy brands where they actually the pitch process can take up to nine months. But when it converts the ideas, you you sign those contracts for three to five years minimum, if not more. Um, it's actually splitting uh, the grid and the pipeline according, understanding what the emphasis are and where do I actually put efforts in terms of closing the short-term goals in, in terms of the project opportunities. Um, you know, one-year uh, agency opportunities. First is the ones that are much more longer burn, working bigger procurement teams uh, to bed in a longer-term relationship. So that by varying the pipeline in terms of value of client value of opportunity and value of value of emphasis uh, you start to be able to plot out against the short term and the long term right that that
0: makes sense and you're you sort of you know dividing up time that way so to, to dig into time management a little bit um how are you how are you thinking about like the ways in which you you provide value and maintain these relationships you know as opposed to i, I think a lot of the times our our clients and and the agencies we we talk to have new business people and they're sort of like racking their brains each morning thinking about how do I stay in touch without just asking, are you ready to buy with us yet? Um, you know, how, how do we, how do we stay in touch without just whining and dining people? Like what's, what's an actual genuine way to, to provide that value. So I, I love your thoughts on that. And like when you're, when, you know, when you're approaching this on a day to day level, what are some of the, the ideas you're coming
1: up with? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Well, tough question. Mm-hmm. Um, without giving away trade secrets. Sure. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I hmm, maybe, maybe it's the way, again, I go back to the point I mentioned before. Uh, my emphasis is not about number, 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 closing, 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 mm-hmm. which is very, very BD driven. It's much more on investing in the time to build relationships. Um, and, and those relationships are across multiple fold, right? So there's client, there's industry, there is uh, partners, there is uh, consultants, so on and so forth. So uh, there's only so many hours in the day. In the meantime, you're also in the pitch mode, and you're constantly pitching. So um, I think time management is a tough one. Because if you ask me, am I having a good uh, work life balance? No, I've got, I'm having a very good <laughs> uh, balance in terms of work life balance is a little bit up in the air. So I have a very understanding other half um, uh, because I also do a global role. So if, and, and that actually is the, the key issue. It's because of multiple time zones, right? So I'm, I'm operating on multiple time zones. Right. Um, there, is no, there is no art or science, to be honest. I think it's almost instinctive yeah. to know when you're pestering versus mm-hmm. when you're being helpful. Uh, and it's a very fine line. And, yeah. and you will know once you've crossed it. Uh, and unfortunately, that'll be too late. Um, so... I just read the situation really, and in, if I like, for example, this morning I found, and you know, part of my internal clients are my the CEOs of all my operating companies. They are my internal clients, and I've got external prospects that I look after. So this morning, you know, I'm I'm a I'm part of the global board and us collectively on the board. Um, We were talking about something on the board meeting the other day which is really interesting uh, and it was quite uh, thought provoking and this morning I actually read a very interesting story and campaign uh, and actually read hold on I actually read very similar stories over the last sort of three weeks so I literally just a compilation of look at what's interesting about this trend and XYZ is happening etc and then just help inform the community I work with because I know what these people are like they've got 98% of their time is focused on fighting fires or pitching for, for new business exists you know, handling existing clients, talent issues and, you know, resourcing issues and time management issues, so on and so forth and, and billing issues, et cetera. Um, so being helpful is another way that I feel I keep in touch. And it's not about I, every conversation I have with a, with a prospect is not about selling. Yep. And that's so important. Uh, you do not constantly selling. You are softly selling by building a trusted relationship. The, the outputs of that come further down the line, sometimes they come immediately, sometimes they come further down the line. so I think my emphasis is about building on that relationship um, and and not forcefully selling, finding the perfect moment to keep in touch uh, and again just by reading the situation and being very very astute about the the, the, the opportunity to actually connect
0: yeah and, and I think that that's it's actually really compelling because it, it's you realize as you go along that the role is more about about learning and understanding. Global trends and, and economics, and all sorts of other things that you then get to get to teach, and that becomes, uh, you know, a much uh, not bigger, but a, a pretty substantial part of the role in comparison to the actual like pitching and closing. So I yeah. think that's that's really really important. Um, to, to shift gears a little bit and kind of go from, from you know, your, your micro day-to-day to the macro, I'd love, love to learn more about, about what you're seeing. And in particular, you know, all the hubbub and all the talk and is, is about the sort of decline and the downfall of this traditional madman agency of record model. Like the big agency that does everything for, for a big company. Um mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know how, how much you, you think that that talk is uh, reflects reality, and, and and just where you think things are headed, having given your experience of places like Ogilvy and, and others.
1: I actually. That's literally what I sent around to the board this morning, actually, that subject matter. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've just come back from Lisbon, where I was there with the web, attending the web summit, and I spent a lot of time in London before then, um, various meetings. And what was interesting is just looking at the different markets and looking at what's uh, happening here in the US, there's actually an uptake on holding companies winning a lot of business at the moment, interestingly. Um, and um, and I'm just going to cite a few examples. So it's reported in Campaign in Ad Week or Ad Age. I can't remember. Uh, but Team One Publicis is doing really quite well. Publicis Team One, for example, has just won the uh, Jacuzzi account, and that's and I hate the word integrated, uh, but they brought together talent skills from brand advertising to public relations to digital and social and so on and so forth. And Team One at Publicis won that. Uh, they didn't mention specifically which agency, but literally it's branded. They built a bespoke team called Team One at Publicis that won the business. Also in the same vein, vein um, today, one of the reports I saw was Team One Touch at uh, Publicis won the biased off, biased off account. And the major sort of creative account on that was Nivea. Plus a few other uh, sort of accounts. WPP also won a very interesting uh, integrated remit with Userin and Hansaplast. I think Um, uh, Mark Reed was quoted in campaign about two and a half, three weeks ago about the about thirty something percent. I think I can't remember the exact figure. In fact, bear with me. There is a number that he talked about. Um, uh, Let's see. I think it was about thirty percent of the. No, uh, sorry, yeah, about thirty-three percent. Integrated accounts uh, make up a third of WPP's new business pipeline, um, and then you know we've we've had WPP winning the integrated media account for AXA, um, and you know Samsung put together an integrated team. Samsung, uh, um, sorry, publicist put together an integrated team. Samsung to work on the media piece of the business so multiple media agencies within uh, within publicists came together and actually created a very bespoke team for the Samsung so these are all big holco's big legacy networks, right? Uh, but what I think the shift is, and this is one of the things I experienced when I was at Ogilvy, because I was part of the transformation, when we actually broke away all the front doors of all the operating companies. So, Oakley and Mather went, Ogilvy One went, Ogilvy Public Relations went. And, uh, all these brand names, In you know, it's not that we killed them, but we just said, well, this doesn't function, guys, because, it, you know, clients don't come to us with a, uh, you know, an advertising only problem and it's only going to be answered by advertising or a, community, a PR only problem, which can only be answered by PR. Yes, they may exist. Those things may still exist in small pockets. But what clients are coming to us right now is this is my end consumer. I have a real problem trying to engage with that consumer uh, because that consumer is saturated by all sorts of forms of communications and it's all very digitally driven. Um, I need to just get to the mindset of how do I get my product, my service in front of them and just be the best um, option for their, for their sort of journey in life. Right. Um, and often that's a complicated mix. So the real challenge is not about whether it's a whole co, whether it's, it's a big organization, but it's about talent. Ultimately that's what we sell. We sell talent and creativity. Um, and, What's really interesting is this whole Holco model. Um, yes, it may work for some; it may not work for others. But it's actually about what what the Holcos are doing really well is to pull the best teams together from wherever they sit in our network and you know I want the best person on influencer I want the best person who are on on creative advertising I want the best person or the best creative I want the best strategist I want the best planner and this may sit across multiple areas uh, and it is about creating and that's why I kind of like what Publicist has done actually in creating the bespoke teams um and and in my time at WPP that's what we did team WPP was there's so many teams within, I think there are like 50 or 60 different top clients. You know, there's Team BA, there's Team Detroit for Ford, uh, which brought together the best of collaborative skills from across the business. Um, So I think those those models are the ones that actually are going to work because it's not about agency. The emphasis is not about the agency, but the emphasis is on the talent that responds and fixes the client's problem. So I think that for me is where I see the shift actually happen.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting, and I'm I'm really glad you you brought up talent. And I just had this conversation with with a friend of mine in the tech space. And a lot of what what we're seeing, and a lot of what the trends seem to be, is a lot of the the top talent, especially on the younger side of things, is going to Silicon Valley, um, right. or, or going maybe to the brand side, maybe to work with these companies directly. And there's a lot of talk about there, there being a real dearth of talent on the agency side. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so first, I'd love to hear if that if you would agree with that. If that's something you're seeing, and, and just where you think that's going.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm actually, to be honest, we see a mix of both. Um, I think the biggest challenge facing the the talent industry a is um, actually having a very diverse workforce and talent team. For me, what I find are the biggest problems. So, you know, we're not short of people applying for roles and, you know, the talent pool, as in, like, the the volume is there. Uh, The actual talent, i.e. the skill, is the skill. Um, So the twofold. So the skill is the challenge, and a lot of that is, you know, I remember I did. I was old school, right? I'm commu- old school communications, where I learned the craft of it by. If you go back to the old days of PR, where I was actually cutting newspapers and sticking them and creating press books, because that's how clients clients work. But today, everything's so digitally driven, and everything's actually so fast moving, so fast. Um, I think what a lot of us have actually forgotten the craft of actually uh, building, and, and whether it's storytelling or, or building brands, a lot of that craft is actually missing because a lot of people are shortcutting a lot of that. Yeah. So that that is the talent, literally the skill set issue. The other piece that's missing I think is literally the, the whole and I'm a real champion of, of equality and I, I don't like the word diversity because I think it's not you don't just necessarily have a diverse team because then you're literally ticking boxes and trying to fill roles with people of colour or people of minorities, etc. But it's about equality right? So whether it's gender or sexuality or race or ability, um, how do we create this equality across a business so that people see eye to eye and treat others equally? Because then once you've got that level of equality, the thinking that comes out of that group, because they all have different walks of life and different experiences, that starts to elevate the output, which is you know, I, Antonio Lucio at uh, at currently at CMO at Facebook, but was CMO HP. He really did a good job at HP when he actually I think HP was one of the, the brands who uh, when they ran through the pitch process, they insisted that the agency teams needed to be fully diverse in, in so many whether it's gender, race, you know, sexuality, ability, because they wanted people who had those train of thought and, and that kind of background to be able to bring that kind of thinking into the operations of a business so that the outputs of the advertising campaign and the PR campaigns can show very diverse thoughts that connect with a very diverse audience. So for me, there is, at least I see currently, it's it's really hard to actually attract diverse talent because a lot of them, particularly people of minorities, don't feel that this is an industry for them like you know there there are no there's no precedent uh before to actually say yes people of color or people of minorities etc um have a role here it's it's still a, a very traditionally in so many ways fortunately a very madman industry still mm-hmm. you know and and it's shifting is it I and mean, you know is it changing absolutely should it be changing a lot faster absolutely so i do think the talents twofold i e just getting a lot of the groundwork, like old school understanding of how communications and marketing works and actually nurturing talent from that level and also opening the floodgates to a diverse talent pool.
0: Right, and I think we could probably have a whole episode about, about that and I, I would perhaps love to at some point, uh, but yep. to, to respect your time and everything. Uh, another thing I would, I would love to learn more about is, is uh, China because you're, you're doing a lot of work there. Um, the agency that you're working with now is is, is coming from that that area, you know, from from that that nation. So I, I think the one thing that's very uh, murky to to people involved in advertising in the U.S. is what that looks like, like what the advertising landscape looks like in China, and you know, if for the agencies that are, are in our listenership that have the ability to work abroad, you know, what does the opportunity look like for a U.S. agency to help a Chinese company in this day and age? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I can't. There's one of the things that we my uh, so I managed to get our exact chairwoman on, on a panel at Web Summit in, Lo- in Lisbon. And it was um, specifically talking about the East-West uh, divide on branding. So, you know, and, and focus on China and the rest of the world. Um, very, very interesting fact. And forgive me because I cannot remember the exact year, but I, I know the number uh, in terms of the value of, of what the Chinese audience would bring to the world. So I think it's over the next 10 years, I think it's over the next 10 years, uh, it's estimated that the Chinese audience, so consumers and, and population of China, will pose a $6 trillion opportunity for brands. Now, simple fact, if you're not partaking the $6 trillion, what are you doing? Right, because uh, you know, and I, I'm an avid traveler. I love to travel, and everywhere I go right now, the moment you land at the airport, you get into the city, you just look at the volume of um, Chinese tourists. You know, it's very hard to ignore that. Um, and one thing that was so interesting, and when I was spending some time earlier this year in Beijing and Macau for one of our board meetings, uh, we had uh, uh, one of the Google um, employees, and I know Google's. Not used in China, but we have a team, of Google has a team that does on a different level of work. They're presenting a map of China. And literally, they started to talk about the provinces within China. Um, and I remember one of the smallest provinces was the size of the UK population. Right? So you're talking about it's almost like a city. Yeah. You know, it's a province. It was about 60 million people. And that's one part of the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, we should also apply this to India which has the other big population in the world. And um, the, I, I was at TED earlier this year, and, and I'm actually going to just blanket both India and China as part of the conversation in terms of East and West. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember his name. I think it was Professor Kishore from the Singapore, University of Singapore. And he talks about how up to now, Western Europe and the Western world, and that includes North America, has been the dominant giant in the communications, marketing, uh, and branding world, and commerce right? So it's been driven, driving everything. And India and China have been sleeping giants and suddenly they're waking up. Mm-hmm. But as they wake up, they, they are about half the world's population in two countries, two continents or countries or whatever you call them. So it's China and India obviously is, is, is a continent. So what's really interesting is, wow. When, when Two and a half billion people suddenly wake up and go, oh, what's the rest of the world doing? Let me go out and explore. And that's, you know, it's got political impact, social impact, economical impact, so on and so forth for reasons why the doors are opening. Um, it has a tremendous impact on how people perceive the country and perceive um, outside the country. So there's a lot of things to learn. And the biggest thing I think right now is the cultural divide. Um, you know, because you talk about a country where, you know, we're, we're all about equality, et cetera, here. And that, that doesn't necessarily translate within the borders of China, for example. Mm-hmm. India, certainly not. Like, you know, there's a class system, there's gender divide, et cetera. So how do you translate that and actually adapt? As we did in Western Europe over so many years, we're still fighting for equality today in the Western world. Um, we can expect the same. So I think it's going to be a gently chipping away type of approach uh, to actually helping understand the, the 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 eastern audience, what makes them tick, what what the triggers are. Uh, in that way, we start to develop campaigns that actually are very much targeted to those audiences. And interestingly, those audiences that travel abroad as well. So there are a lot of brands who want to specifically target oh, Chinese Americans or Chinese individuals here in the U.S., traveling in the U.S., living, studying, so on and so forth. Um, What are the communications factors that actually engage them versus, uh, you know, engaging an an average American or average foreigner? Uh, Those messages are completely different. So it goes down to understanding the data behind the consumer. What are the trigger points? How do you actually build a campaign that specifically speaks them in their language with the right culture and you want?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember being in Hyderabad and you see these billboards that are saying things explicitly that you could only whisper in a western ad, saying like if you, you know, move to this uh exclusive development only for the elites, you know, something to that effect just put in bold face type basically. So I guess w- with that in mind, you know, if, as uh as an agency leader, how, and this might be a tough question to answer so I apologize in advance, but how much do you think, ethically, you know, a Western agency should conform to the culture, whether it's uh, ethical or not, whether it's an equal or unequal culture, versus you know holding their ground and saying, you know, we're not going to conform to this. this. This doesn't represent our values, necessarily.
1: Oof. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you're throwing this. I told you it was a hard one. Listen, I'm, I'm going to speak not with the hat of my company, or not that it reflects what my company is. Sure. or or suggests, but what I see the world is turning into uh, and what I think is right. Um, So, you know, I've got kids who are growing up and entering the world and preparing them for that world. Um, And I want to quote uh, Mark Benioff uh, at Salesforce. uh, Brands are the greatest agents of change. And I also want to pick up the word you used, value, values. Brands who don't have values or purposes or a purpose will find it very hard to exist. Will they survive? Will, will they, sorry, we very hard to survive. Will they exist? Yes, possibly. Will there be a, a flash in the pan? Possibly. But there is a significant shift in consumers buying and engaging with services or products that actually live up to a purpose, right? Um, and, you know, whether that's about sustainability, whether that's about your belief in equality, um, any any number of uh, variables, right? Um, and But if you are true to your values, true to your purpose, uh, you will find an audience because the audience is growing in that direction. Uh, and in Lisbon, Ben Whipple, who's the uh, CEO of Accenture Digital, who he engineered the Droga 5 acquisition, um, he said something so interesting, it's a very interesting fact, and my God, it was something that just woke me up. Uh, the baby boomer generation right now control about 80, interesting facts, and there's data from Accenture, um, control about 85%, 80 to 85% of the world's wealth right now, baby boomer generation. And they expect a lot of this generation to die out over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Interestingly, the generation that's going to inherit this wealth, currently, the majority of them are within the 20 to 35-year-olds. And that group live with the ideals of purpose and value at their heart. So you're going to see a shift from the budgets or the money that these people had spending on just buying things that's based on elitism, et cetera, with very little regard for the values of the world or the pur- a purpose-driven value, Sunny's going to shift to, I'm only going to spend my money with brands that actually stick to my values and conform to my values. And I believe in And whether that's any, any element of purpose, right? If you're a brand existing in that world, then you have to make a conscious choice. Do I want to exist and actually sell and, and build my brand? And therefore, I don't like the word conform you have to make a very conscious decision of how you want to exist. Because, you know, interestingly, we I think just last over the last 24 hours, Chick-fil-A finally made a decision to uh, to pull out of their sponsorship or support of uh, Salvation Army and the, I can't remember what it's called, I think it's the FCA, Federation of Christian Athletes, or something like that, because of their very visible and, and vocal anti-LGBTQ stance. Now, if you want to think about it, has the propaganda that's led over the last year and a half, two years, where a lot of the LGBTQ communities and its allies have stood up to the brand to say, hit them where, the, where it hurts, i.e. in the pocket, no longer consuming Chick-fil-A, um, you know, sandwiches. Was that the instigator to them making the, the conscious decision to change their minds? I mean, literally, it's taken you that long to make that decision. Yeah. Who knows? But it shows that the power of the consumer when when they do want to change things, they can. So if you're going to exist as a brand within this environment, you have to decide which bit do you support? Are you just a functional brand? Are you going to live as a brand with purpose? But what we can see from a trends point of view is, I'm a I'm a consumer with 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 purpose because I, I look at products and packaging. I look at you know where products are sustainably sourced, etc. Uh, and when there's questionable. You know, I I choose where I spend my money. You know, when I read about certain political uh, organizations or brands supporting very, very uh, harmful political decisions, I consciously choose not to spend my money in those organizations. Um, So for me, I'm thinking, well, if I'm doing it, I'm one of 7.7 billion people in the world. Can you imagine the momentum of an entire group of people doing it? Um, So I think. I don't have an answer, but I think brands will have to find their own path in that. Uh, but just know that the way of the world is very, very purpose-driven. Yeah, no,
0: I think I think that's a great answer. And that, and that makes a lot of sense. And we could go a lot further into it. And I, I hope you're right on that angle as a millennial. I think the big if is, uh, you know, it, assuming we don't sell out, <laughs> just, yeah. just yeah. like the boomers did and everyone mm-hmm. else. So Yeah. it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Suresh, thank you so much for your time. Uh,
1: Dan, thank you so much. Yeah, of
0: course. And how could people get in touch with you?
1: Um, Just by emailing me. It's Suresh, S-U-R-E-S-H dot Raj, R-A-J at blue hyphen impact dot com.
0: Awesome. Thanks again, Suresh. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And if you'd like to learn more about our new business programs and what we do to help agencies keep the pipeline full and continue to grow, you can learn more about us at salesschema.com and schedule a free consultation. And I look forward to catching you on the next episode of the podcast. Thank you.